Good morning and welcome. Welcome to you. Welcome to worship at Pleasant Street Christian Reformed Church. Uh, there are guests and visitors with us today, uh, both here in the room and also online. And so to all of you who are joining us, uh, whether for the first time or because this is where you are every week, welcome. We are so glad that you could be with us, right? And when I say that, that those words, welcome, uh, we don't mean those tritely. That's not a stock phrase that I start with every week. It's actually one of the values that we've decided to lift up as a congregation. We were talking about mission and vision as a church as of recently, and when we looked around as to who we are as a community and who God is inviting us into to become, the first thing that we said is that in this world, this congregation, we want to be a place of genuine experience of Christ's welcome and hospitality. And so that is why each Sunday when we begin with those words, we, we aren't just saying hi. We are in fact bringing the welcome of God to you and then sharing that welcome to each other. So my friends, I'll say it again, welcome. So glad that you could be with us today. Um, Especially for those of you who are joining us as guests or visitors, we recognize that post-pandemic, people are still trying to find their way back toward the things that are important to them. And so if you have chosen to walk through those doors or to click a link and join us online, we do not take that for granted. And we are glad for you to be with us today. And we hope that in worship you will experience fellowship and welcome and hospitality with us too. Friends, as we get started today, you will notice that the scenery is different and the pastor is wearing different things. It's the season of Advent. Um, these four Sundays leading up to Christmas are a special and important time for us as Christians. It's the beginning of the new liturgical year, and we begin the year by looking back and remembering that Jesus came. And all the joy that we experience this season connects to that coming of Jesus who brought God's presence into our lives. But in this season, we also miss people who we can't see or who will not join us at the table. We are sick and we are sorrowing. And so in Advent, we also look ahead to the day when Jesus will come back with iron scepter and make all things new. And so Advent is a weird time for Christians because we are stretched between the past and the future. And the best way to do that is to celebrate together. So friends, as we get started this morning, I want to highlight one announcement for you, and that is that next Sunday, right there in the fellowship hall, which you walked through, we're going to be having breakfast. And the high school students are going to be making breakfast for us. They're going to be having bacon and eggs and pancakes. And we would love if you could join us for that. So please come. It starts at 8.30. Uh, there will be room for you. Please join us if you can. The other thing is that as we begin our Advent series, uh, we're trying something a little different, both in the, in the texts that we're using, but also in how we're doing it. So Fairlawn Church, our sister congregation, and Pleasant Street are celebrating Advent together. And to do that, Joel and I cooked up a little document for you guys to look at. It's a lot of words, I realize, but what are you going to do with two pastors who are writing a joint? It's just, you know... It's a miracle, it's not a book, right? Um, but Advent miracle there for you. But we printed it on nice gray paper to make it more interesting to look at. But anyway, we invite you to take one of these, look at it online, use this as a way for us as two congregations and as a congregation to, to enter this Advent series of texts together. 
Having come here into God's presence, I invite you to rise in body or in spirit. Friends, let's begin our worship. Good morning, everyone. In the beginning, God created all things good, and the Spirit of God was over over the waters. When humans ruined God's good beginning, God promised a new beginning through Abraham. God created a people through Abraham and promised that the Spirit of God would be poured out on all sons and daughters. God's people struggled to believe his promises. They suffered oppression and exile. God created a tabernacle among them, and the Spirit of God was on the builders. God's people sinned. The new beginning was often at risk of ending. When the time was right, God took on flesh and created his dwelling among us. God kept his promise for new beginning, and the Spirit of God came upon Mary. God's promised Savior was born in a manger, and new creation was born from the, from the, from the tomb. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, creating us hope in our grief, peace for our joy, joy for our anxiety, love through our lives. Come, Holy Spirit, birth Christ. Rejoice, rejoice. 
unto thee, O Israel. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. You may be seated. Every family tells stories. We tell stories about people in the family. In return, those stories tell the family who they are. The family of Israel tells the story of a coming king. But who is he? What is this king like? Matthew begins to answer this question in the opening verses of his gospel. Who is Jesus? He is a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is descended from Jesse and David and Solomon. His mothers include Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. These names Matthew includes, we aren't merely names in a list. We are people with stories of suffering, of waiting, of grace, of God's triumph. There's waiting, and then there's waiting. Extended, prolonged, heart-wrenching, why God, waiting. That's my story. Judah, son of Jacob, selected me to be a wife to his firstborn son, Ur. If I bore a son, I might become a prominent woman in the family. The wait began, waiting to become a mother, waiting to experience the blessing of my foremother's promised, the blessing of security in a family of my own, but no child came. After Ur died, I was given to his brother, but there was still no child, no security, no status. I was considered a failure and a curse. Ur's youngest brother, Shayla, was too young to marry yet. So Judah sent me back to the household of my father, where I waited again. When Shayla was ready for marriage, still I waited. It seemed I would wait behind my widow's veil forever. It's true that I took drastic measures in what came next. I disguised myself and waited for Judah alongside the road. Judah mistook me for a shrine prostitute and unwittingly fulfilled his son's destiny. When I realized I was with child, I felt a tingling mixture of thrill and fear. Soon I would no longer be able to hide my secret. Would Judah abandon me or would he accept his heirs? When Judah discovered I was pregnant, he was furious. The rumors shamed him and his household. His, he ordered my execution. At that moment, I revealed his paternity and then I waited, my life, my future, suspended in midair. Would Judah deny me? Would God abandon me? Finally, my prayers were answered. It was more than I hoped for. Judah apologized to me and welcomed me back into his family. Not only that, Judah called me righteous, me. And the twins I carried, carried on his line, a line that ends in Jesus. Somehow, by God's amazing grace, what I did became part of what God was doing. Never in my wildest dreams did I imagine becoming a mother in the line of the Messiah. Every family tells stories. Not all of them are easy, but don't forget mine. For my story is about God's unexpected work in unexpected people. And telling this story teaches us to hope that God still works in unexpected people, people like me, maybe even you. Today we light the candle of hope, the hope promised by prophets long ago. The hope born to bear our sin. The hope for a future provided by Jesus' sacrifice. The assurance that even as we wait for his return, we can know God personally. 
we begin with this song, you can please rise and body your spirit. In the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light, till from heaven you came running, there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets. To a virgin came the word From the throne of endless glory To a cradle in the dirt Praise the Father Praise the Son Praise the Spirit Three in one God of glory Praise forever to the King of Kings. To reveal the kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost. To redeem the whole creation, you did not despise the cross. For even in your suffering, you saw to the other side. Knowing this was our salvation, Jesus, for our sake you died. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three. In the morning that you rose, all of heaven held its breath. Till that stone was moved for good, even the Lamb had conquered death. And the dead rose from their tombs, and the angels stood in awe. For the souls of all who'd come to the Father are the church of Christ was born, and the rear it held the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not heal, shall not faint. By his blood and by his name, in his freedom I am free. For the love of Jesus Christ, who has resurrected me. Praise for
King of Kings. You may be seated. It's Advent. It's the season in which we prepare our hearts to welcome Christ, who is the bringer of all peace. And we confess to you the ways in which we aren't open to the peace of Christ in our lives. We have been anointed with your spirit, but are not always open to sharing your peace and love with others. Join our salvation. Open our, heart, our minds, hearts, and hands, Lord. Give us a willing spirit to show your love and peace to the world. Amen. And let's take a moment in a silent confession to God. All the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ. It is God who has put the seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. By the power of the spirit, we are united with Christ and have been given a new spirit. Live in joy and peace of that assurance. I'd like to welcome the deacons up for our morning offering. They'll come around with the baskets. Uh, you can also give online or with the QR code in the bulletin. And with that, let's pray. Holy One, this Advent season, we wait in hope, and we also give in hope. Lord, hope for your coming reign, hope because of your presence even with us now. Receive these generous offerings, Lord, and use them for your work of healing and hope in our world. Amen.
my song to rise with you when temptation comes my way when I cannot stand I'll fall on you and Jesus you're my hope and stay Lord I need you in church we hear this good news that God makes peace and forgives our sins and we get a chance to pass that peace to each other and as we pass the peace some might be might be comfortable with a handshake others might be comfortable with a wave so let's just pass this peace with each other right now so friends the peace of Christ is with you let's take a moment and pass the peace Uh, it's now time for our Kids Street dismissal. Uh, kids ages four through second grade are invited to come up and be dismissed for Kids Street. The people of God, what is our prayer? Continue to show us your wonderful, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Amen. The Lord be with you. Go in peace to love and serve Jesus. Friends, we continue our Advent worship together, taking the things that have given us joy and the things that are hard and heavy to hold and lifting them up together to God. Would you join me in this prayer? Eternal God, the peoples of the earth search for you. We ache and we long for you even if we don't realize it. Lord, as people who have been called by your name, you are teaching us to call you Father and to cry out to you in our pain and in our longings and to bring to you the things that make us wonderfully happy, knowing that you hear and receive all of these things. 
So we do so on behalf of ourselves and for the sake of the world. In this season of content and discontent, we ask, O oh God, that you would speak to us about your coming and about your already arrival. Speak to us with words of hope and grace and comfort and encouragement. Speak to us so that we might persevere in faith. For there are days when we grow weary of waiting in a world that can be very dark. Open our eyes to see your grace where our eyes have been closed by fear or by self-pity. Help us to see you even in the anxieties and uncertainties that beset these days and sometimes threaten us. Focus our distracted hearts. Help us to see your presence amid all the hustle and bustle and busyness, the tasks and traditions, the rude shoppers and the long lines. Help us to respond to your presence with small acts of love and generosity and kindness. We pray for this kind of seeing and this kind of responding as we think about congregations who carry your name and call you Father. We think about it with some of the church plants that we know and support. We pray for Resurrection Church East Boston in their worship and their work in the city. We pray for the neighborhood in Providence for theirs. We remember our brothers and sisters at Emmaus City in Worcester. We pray for our sister congregations in Maine and in Connecticut and Vermont and our sister church of Fairlawn. Lord, we pray for missionaries who are traveling and visiting and reconnecting with uh, partner congregations. We pray for other missionaries who will spend the holidays serving you far from home and family. Lord, we pray that through their work that they would know your presence in their lives and call others to see your work in the midst of this world and to give up faith and trust in all things and place it in you. As those who are trying to place our faith in you, we bring to you now the needs of others, and we ask that you would help us to pray for them, whether they are needs that are nearby or very far away. We pray, Lord, for those who are sick or who are recovering from sickness or surgery. We pray for Karen and Steve. We remember Carol. We pray and lift up Maggie, who is battling tremors and sleeplessness. We pray for Hank and Bev. We remember Mary. We remember Leanne and Rick. Lord, we add quietly in our hearts the names and stories of all those others as well. Lord, in this holiday season, we pray also for those who are experiencing disillusionment, who have lost the luster and the sparkle of traditions and family. We pray that you would come and meet with them, O oh God. Lord God, looking around, we see also the needs of those who are providing care for aging parents or loved ones, spouses or friends. We lift them up to you as well. Lord, we add to these 
those who satisfy and care for the needs of young children. Amidst all the busyness and sickness of winter, we lift them up to you too. Lord, this week many of us were able to gather around tables with friends and family, but some of those seats were empty in a new way or just brought us the reminder of that. And so we give you thanks for a chance to feast and reconnect with family and friends. We lift up to you also those among us who were not able to do this, who miss loved ones during the holidays. We name them before you now. Lord, as we come to the end of the year, we know that for some of us, that means new challenges. And so we think of those who are studying in school or away at college or university, who are studying for exams and tests, or who are preparing to travel. And we ask, oh God, that you would be with them in the midst of this busy time. We pray, too, for those whose work at year end ramps up and gets very, very demanding. We pray, O oh God, for these people and their stories as well. The end of the year brings also anticipation. And so, with those who are excited about presents they've been able to find for loved ones or friends, we give you thanks and joy. For those who look forward to the chance to come home and to be with their family, we give you thanks in their joy. And for Angie and Zach in particular, who are engaged and anticipating a wedding next year, we pray and we give you thanks. We ask that you'd be with them even now as they're preparing to get married. Lord, as people here who stand between your coming once and who hope for your return in glory, we pray for peace and we ask that your peace would dwell in the earth that your peace, which comes like a light that breaks through the clouds, would come to a place like Ukraine and to all places where war tears the earth and families apart. We pray for your grace, which shows up so unexpectedly in our lives, which changes us, which we ask would also change all the world. Come to us, Lord, for even now here, we need your presence too. And so, O oh God, we pray all these things through Jesus Christ, who is the joy of those who are happy and the comfort of those who mourn. Amen. Hello again. You look different from this angle, somehow. Uh, one of the things that happens in winter is sometimes you have a last-minute roster change. One of the benefits for me is that I get the opportunity to read the scripture today as we start a new series. We are turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, for the Sundays in Advent. 
and to the stories that uh, Matthew is linking to in those stories. Uh, We begin our journey to Bethlehem in the season of Advent. That might be a new word or concept for some of you, and so if it is, I'd invite you to take a moment to take a look at the document that Pastor Joel and I put together for our churches. This Advent, we are preparing to meet Jesus by looking at Matthew's genealogy. In particular, we're looking at the stories of four women who are included and named in Jesus' family tree. These stories are not for the faint of heart. They might not seem like good news to you, is what I'm saying. And if the Bible is new to you, it may come as an unexpected surprise to you to find such stories as the ones we're about to look at together in the Bible. Tamar's story is a mature one. There are words and descriptions and themes that might be unsettling or just difficult to hear. Then again, so have the news headlines been. I wonder if the surprise for us this morning might be in hearing the Bible describe a world as real as the one that we live in. And if that's true, and if this is in fact God's story, then the story of Tamar might just be good news after all. So friends, I'd invite you to join me in looking at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 6, and the story of Tamar in Judah 38. In, uh, excuse me, Genesis 38. Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And from Genesis 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Herah. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son whose name was Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. 
What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She said. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the man who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock after all, I, I did send her this young goat, but she didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I wouldn't give her my son, Shelah, and he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. And then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was named Zerah. 
Friends, this is God's word. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, who came once among us in a mysterious and not obvious way, we stand and sit together today, all these years later, looking and hoping for your arrival among us. Seated as we are before a strange story like this one, we ask, O God, that by your Spirit you would come and show us Tamar's story and how it is good news for us as we wait and long and hope for good news Be with our brothers and sisters at Fairlawn as they begin the same journey with us. Amen. Well, Jane Austen did not write a sequel to Pride and Prejudice. And so when Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy marry at the end of the book, we're still left with some questions about the mysterious Darcy family. Who are they? How did they get all that wealth? What is this estate that they live at? Well, there was another author later named P.D. James who did write a sequel later on for Jane Austen. His novel is called Death Comes to Pemberley. And in it, P.D. James imagines how a sequel to Pride and Prejudice might have gone. If Pride and Prejudice is a love story, Death Comes to Pemberley is a murder mystery. And it takes place at Pemberley Estate, the uh, estate where the Darcy family lives. In the sequel, we learn all kinds of interesting things about the Darcy family estate and their family history, which we didn't get in Jane Austen's book. At one point in the story, Elizabeth is walking through the woods around Pemberley Estate when she happens upon her husband. Mr. Darcy is standing alone in the woods, staring at a headstone, which she'd never noticed before because it's hidden in a clump of trees. He is startled by her presence, and he won't explain whose grave it is or why he's in the middle of the woods, almost as though this person there is meant to remain hidden from the world forever. Well, eventually, Elizabeth, being Elizabeth, pursues it until she learns that the grave belongs to Mr. Darcy's great-grandfather, She's surprised because she's been married into this family for years. They have portraits all over the wall of famous people in their family, and yet never once has she heard about the great-grandfather. Well, Darcy finally relents and explains why. Great-grandfather Darcy was a philanderer and a reckless gambler. As he drowned himself in liquor, Pemberley Estates sank into debt up to its spires. He nearly lost the entire estate, and if this were not enough shame, he heaped it upon them by taking his own life. English society at the time was not kind to complicated or checkered family histories. Great-grandfather's Darcy's life and his death, it in fact threatened to cast the reputation deep into ruin. So, 
he was buried alone deep in the woods and never spoken of again. Which we understand. We don't live in 18th century English society, but it's unlikely that great-grandfather Darcy would make it into our holiday family newsletter this year. I saw a meme recently, the internet is a wonderful thing. Holiday memes can be the best, don't you think? Anyway, it was a kind of uh, public service announcement, and it said, during, during uh, family portraits this holiday season, make sure to put the girlfriends and the boyfriends to the outside of the picture so they can be easily photoshopped out. <laughs> Cynical humor aside, right? It's a little bit true, isn't it? Also, that sometimes we Photoshop a whole lot more. Our family trees branch out with all kinds of limbs, some of them very healthy, some of them rotten. Some of them we aren't sure what to do with. We carry stories of shame and family dysfunction. There are events in our own lives individually that we feel we have to bury in the wooden margins of our own history. Not everyone gets a portrait on the wall Sometimes we don't talk about Bruno. During the Christmas season, we gather together and we will gather together around tables full of food and one of the things that we will do is we will tell family stories. But there are some stories that aren't passed around the table while passing the bread pudding. Sometimes there are certain people in the family who just never seem to come up. Have you noticed this? It's as if they no longer have a seat or a place in the family history. So just imagine a curious nephew asking about great, 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 great grandma and then having to tell the story of how she once seduced her father-in-law into conceiving her a child when he was visiting a hen house. We're a lot more likely to change the subject than give great, 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 great grandma's story a seat at the table. And so isn't it interesting that this is exactly what Matthew has done when he begins his Christmas story? Matthew begins his story about the birth of Jesus, the gospel good news of Jesus, with, of all things, a family history. I know that Matthew chapter 1 looks like a list, but it's not a list. This is a genealogy, and it doesn't mean very much to us in this culture, but in ancient cultures and in still traditional cultures today, this is like your resume. This is your bona fides. For, for Matthew and his audience, this is, this is family history. This is who you are. This is Jesus' family tree. And when they gathered around tables for the feasts of Israel, one of the things that people would do is they would tell stories about the family, 
about Abraham and Moses and David and their history. But then there's also these four women in Matthew's genealogy. Well, that is unusual, in case you were wondering. Typically, you only told the stories of the men. And if a woman showed up in a genealogy, it would be someone like Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or Leah, the legitimate wives of the patriarchs, mothers of the faith, if you will. But those are not the four women that Matthew includes. It seems, in fact, that Matthew has gone to some trouble to dig around in the restricted section of the family history to unearth the stories of four women who were not likely to be topics of conversation around the Passover table. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. That Tamar? Yes, the very same Tamar we hear about in Genesis 38. This is how it goes. Just before this scene in Genesis 38, if you know the book of Genesis, you you will know that Judah is the one who has just had the phenomenal idea to sell his irksome little brother into slavery. And then he cooks up a plan with his brothers to deceive their father, Jacob. Talk about family dysfunction. Having torn the fabric of his family, he then turns his back on them, and Judah abandons them to go and hang out with the very people whom God keeps warning them about over and over again, the Canaanites, and everybody makes a collective gasp. Judah is there living among the Canaanites, and he looks around, and he picks out the first woman to catch his eye, and he sleeps with her, and he has three sons, and fast forward quite a few years, and Ur, the eldest son, is now of age. Judah goes about the ancient practice of finding him a wife. He picks Tamar, also a Canaanite. But Ur is wicked, and God kills him. There are no male children, so Tamar is left without life or health insurance, and she has no way to provide those security things on her own. Now, it's within her rights, however, according to Leveret marriage, to become the bride of a husband's brother. This is what happens. He should then give her children to provide for her future and to continue the eldest brother's name and line. So Judah asks Onan to do this for Tamar. And for Ur, but like Jacob with Esau, like Cain with Abel, Onan despises his brother. He thinks, why should my dead brother have children by me and then get all the money from dad? I want it for me and my sons. Onan uses Tamar for himself. He takes what is not his and he does not give what he should. The Lord sees this too and kills him for his wickedness. Well, Judah is running out of sons. He has just the one left, Shelah, but he's not going to give him to Tamar. Two sons are dead, and the only common denominator in this story is, well, this woman. He seems to think that all of this trouble is her fault. So Judah, like his father Jacob the deceiver, deceives her. He tells Tamar to stay in mourning until Shelah grows up, and, and then, then she can marry him. 
But Judah has no intention of giving Shelah to a woman who causes such trouble. Judah sends her away to be her dad's problem, but he also won't let her go from his authority. He doesn't really want her around, but he also can't be rid of her because she's his responsibility. She's part of the family. So he pushes her away, dressing her in black and sticking her somewhere the neighbors can't see. And this is the story that Matthew hyperlinks us to in order to get us ready for Christmas. And he is saying that this is Jesus' family tree. This, behold, is the covenant people of God. Isaac, who had the traumatic experience of being bound to an altar by his dad. Jacob, who conned his way through life until God permanently wounded his hip. His sons, who deceived him and then sold their brother. Judah, who is callous and self-interested, who doesn't want to be part of the family, but also can't be rid of the family. Why, this is, this is not a story of uplift, of morals, Christmas cheer. Who would try to save the world through a family like this? How can these people be the people of God when they are cruel and selfish and unaware of God's work? How can they be the family of God when they are just like mine? Did you notice that Judah does with Tamar what sometimes we do with the Tamars in our history? There are things that we cannot be rid of no matter how hard we try. There are people whom we've hurt and who have hurt us. We cannot really be rid of these stories or these people, but after a while we think, well, maybe if I just stop saying their names. We bury what we can and what we can't. We push to the out-of-the-way places. And so we hide what we did in the sixth grade or what happened to us freshman year, what we said to our spouse or our kids. We hide family members who hurt us and run from the ones we hurt. We hide this history, sometimes even from ourselves, editing, photoshopping out the story of who we are. We can't dwell on the past, we say. Well, there's no use talking about what you can't change. I know. But isn't that exactly the problem? What do we do with the people and the stories that continue to haunt us even though we have put them six feet under? Jesus' family tree is a lot like our family trees. And our family tree is like the human family tree. Sometimes, at this season, we are tempted to lose touch with the ground as though we will ascend to some height of glorious sentimentality. Sometimes, we pretend that we are mostly good and nice people, except for a few bad apples. And then all of a sudden, we're shocked when horrible things happen. How could this possibly happen for good and nice people? But our shock reveals that we have been editing. We have forgotten 
that the human family tree has been rotten for a long time. If there is one thing that the book of Genesis does for us, it is to disillusion us about the family tree. My friends, there is no such thing as the perfect family. There is no such thing as a pure church. Which is certainly something that Tamar has come to realize, don't you think? Tamar, who married into Judah's family and at first heard all about how we are the people of God, but then who over time begins to see more of the reality. And that is what makes what she does next so very interesting. Because a long time goes by and Tamar realizes that this betrothal to Shelah is not going to see a wedding day. She realizes that she's not going to get any children, but she also seems to know in a profound way that she is part of this family too. So she deceives Judah, pretending to be a prostitute, and the old man seems to have not one moral quibble about it. But wait, what will you give me to sleep with you? She asks. A goat? Uh, give me your driver's license, your wallet, and your social security number. Okay. Apparently, Judah is as foolish as he is immoral. Sure, take the seal, the cord, the staff. All right, whatever. Later, Judah asks after this veiled woman, she's nowhere to be found. Uh-oh. Identity theft. Time goes by and Tamar is found to be pregnant Tamar has taken a profoundly great risk, my friends. She has exposed herself, and with her burgeoning belly, the truth is going to come out, and it does come out, and Judah is full of all kinds of righteous indignation. She's betrothed to the son I never intended to give her. My goodness, the nerve. What a cheap woman. What a Well, stone her and have her burned. Judah is ready to be rid of her once and for all, but then she shows up holding his ideas, and Judah is the one exposed for his self-righteousness, his selfishness, and his seedy double standard. Tamar's deception shows Judah the truth. He can finally see who is actually guilty and who is righteous. He says, Tamar is more righteous than I. But literally, he says, she is righteous, not I. Imagine that, my friends. Tamar the Canaanite is called righteous in a story about Israel who is righteous. Judah calls her righteous. And she, she is. Because what she reveals to Judah and to us is that the child for her is not just about justice for a widow who is waiting for something that's not going to happen. It's also about the very future of the people of Israel. Judah is the heir to the line. 
And Judah is meant to bear children of the promise to Abraham, children that will lead to David and from David to the Messiah. But Judah walked away. It was Tamar who cared about the future of this family. Tamar, the Canaanite woman, the enemy of God's people, is more an Israelite than the Israelites are. She better understands the people of God and God's promises than Judah does. Judah, who grew up around the promise his whole life, who grew up hearing the stories around every Passover table, who was in church every Sunday, but it is the arranged marriage immigrant who gets it better than he ever did. Surprise! And it is humbling and it stings in the best possible way, like grace. And a change begins to take root, if you will, in Judah's life. He repents, and not long after this, he goes all the way to Egypt to Joseph, and he repents of selling his brother into slavery. Tamar, the deceiver, puts herself at great risk for her justice, but also for the future of the people of God. She bears two sons, double abundance for all the things that have been taken from her, and a double portion for Judah, who neither wanted nor deserved any of it. He gets two sons through righteous Tamar. Tamar, who teaches Judah to repent. Tamar, the Canaanite, who is loyal to her dysfunctional Israelite family, even when they are not loyal to each other. Her actions shock Judah and, and believe you me, all of Israelite history after this. She gives birth to Perez and Zerah, and Perez begets Zeran, who begets Ram, who begets Amenadab, and on and on, all the way to King David. Tamar, whose story echoes throughout history. And Matthew brings her story to us to show us the full implications of her story. She is not the bearer of a story of shame that should be hidden at all costs. She's not even just righteous. She is a mother of the Messiah. The Messiah descended from Tamar. Surprise. Matthew shows us Jesus who comes to save us from our sins. The angel will say, call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save them from their sins. It's it's all over the story. Jesus will tell us in Matthew chapter 9 himself that he didn't come to call righteous, pure people, but sinners to repentance. Jesus, who is God with us, it's all over the story. But Matthew gives us this genealogy full of the unedited and shameful history of Israel in order to make an even more profound point that I do not want us to miss. Jesus didn't just come for sinners, he came through them. You can trace the birth of Jesus right through the lives of people like Tamar, right through the sordid history, 
Through the stories of sour motives and selfish desires, Matthew traces these stories in order to show us that there is one piece of continuity, and that is the mercy of God like a red thread. Matthew's genealogy is meant to tell us who Jesus is and who he is for. Matthew's answer, my friends, look at who he's from. He is from Gentiles. He is from those who lived with crushing shame. He is from the guilty. He is from those with history they'd rather not get put out in the open. He is from strangers and foreigners and the selfish and the proud and the arrogant and the disinherited and the disinterested. He is from mothers who wait for justice. He is from those wrongly accused and finally vindicated. He is from a family tree full of very difficult stories about things that cannot be changed because they live in the past. And that, my friends, is good news because that means that Jesus comes for us. For us. For our whole family histories, full of all the joy and sorrow held together, for the stories full of pain and loss and wounds and all manner of dysfunction. Gregory of Nazianus, it's all right if you don't know how to pronounce that, I've never heard of him before. He was a Christian poet, he was a theologian in the fourth century, long time ago. In the time in which he lived, there were some spectacular debates happening about Jesus. Who is he? Is he fully human? Is he pretending to be human? Is he only God? What is it? How do we hold this together? Was he mostly God or just enough? Well, Gregory's looking at this debate and he knew that we had to see Jesus Christ as fully human and fully God. And so he came up with a very simple slogan to capture that that goes like this. That which Jesus did not assume, he has not healed. This Advent, we awaited Jesus who assumed a sordid family history that our histories might find healing. Advent is a time for us in the power of the Holy Spirit to see a fuller picture of our history, both collective and individual. It's a time to be reminded of the people and stories we wish did not shape us. It's a time to remember that we are crooked deep down and yet loved all the way to the bottom by God. Loved so much, in fact, that God worked in and through crooked history to bring forth a righteous shoot, a righteous branch, Isaiah says, that sprouts from a rotten tree. God brings forth new life from crooked roots. And Jesus, the Son of God, still by his Spirit works through crooked hearts to bring forth new life in the least expected places. The pure Son of God assumed a tainted family history. How many ways can I say it to you, my friends? The righteous Son of David came to call the unrighteous. The wise royal king came to give his life for the foolish. And by his wounds, we are healed. Our histories of death can now lead to life. Our dysfunction in the past can hold joy in the future. 
our shame is clothed in Jesus and guilt is cleansed in his blood. There was a time later in Matthew's gospel when Jesus will sit around a table full of dysfunctional disciples with the same family history that Jesus had. And he will pick up some bread and some wine. And around the Passover table, around the family meal of memory and hope with bread and wine, Jesus, who is descended from Tamar, told them that salvation has come. Friends, he still takes hopeless history and does immeasurably more than we might ask or imagine, weaving the, an unbroken thread of grace through it all. He already has. But don't take my word for it. Go find a seat next to Tamar. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, how surprising, how wonderful that it really is true that you came, not only that you came, but that you came for the likes of us and that by God's sovereign power and grace, somehow he would work through exactly the kinds of conflicted people and stories that we see around us and that are our stories too. Lord Jesus, it is Advent when we look back and remember your coming and when we look ahead and long for your return. We ask, O oh God, that stretched between these times that you would make us to be people who have eyes to see, to see the red thread, the golden thread of your mercy and grace weaving itself through our stories, knowing that it ends in glory. Amen. During Advent, we remember that Jesus came down. And even as I step from there to here, we are remembering that God has set a table for us in the midst of our lives in all their complexity, in the midst of our community in its joy and sorrow, and that he has done everything necessary to prepare it so that we could come simply trusting him and find a great big meal, even right here in the middle of the wilderness.
So friends, what I'm saying is it's time to celebrate communion together. Whether you are at home with elements that you have set out or you're here with us around this table, uh, among elements that our elders have set out, this is the table of the Lord, friends. And so as we get started, we offer a prayer of thanks to God. And as a note, I want to highlight that because it's winter, and some of us are, that was not what I expected to happen there. Because it's winter, and because some of us are feeling sick or unwell, I uh, wanted to let you know that we have individual uh, pre-packaged elements available to you, if that would be more comfortable for you. Um, and we will distribute both the bread and the juice at the same time as the elders come around with those things. If you would like one of these instead, just give me a little, little wave and I'll make sure to bring them to you. Friends, let me find, excuse me, one second here. Let's pray together. Brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Please pray with me. Blessed are you, God of Abraham and David, for your faithfulness is steadfast and your mercy has been of old. You draw your people to you with your promise of salvation and every promise you have made, you fulfill. From the house of David, you raised up your Messiah to restore Judah and to herald that your deliverance had come near. In your son's righteousness, we find our life, for his righteousness was more than enough for your people who had waited so long for justice, who had yearned so long for redemption, who had trusted so long in your grace. By Christ's death, we can stand up now and look up before you. And through his resurrection, we can share your holy life forever. And so with angels and archangels, we praise your name, proclaiming together your glory, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. God of glory, for whose coming we wait, make this meal we share a sign that our redemption draws near. Send your Holy Spirit upon your church. Strengthen our hearts in all holiness that we may be heralds of your kingdom. Fulfill our hopes and send your gracious spirit on your people and on these gifts of bread and wine that they may be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ who at, supper, uh, who at supper with his disciples gave us this memorial of his sacrifice before he suffered. On the night of his arrest, the Lord Jesus took bread and after giving thanks to God, he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and after giving thanks to God, he gave it to them, saying, This cup is the new covenant, which is sealed in my blood and poured out for you and for many. Whenever you drink it, do this to remember me. 
For friends, whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we together proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Friends, great is the mystery of faith. Together, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Pray with me. God of power revealed in weakness, you promised to make a way to us because we could not find a way to you. So come quickly to those who wait for you today. Raise up every head bent low in sin. Lift up every heart that is bowed down in shame. Uphold every soul that is made heavy by suffering and oppression. Put a new song in every weary throat to sing of the day when justice and mercy kiss. Bring us through all that is passing away to the life that never passes away. A place where every eye shall be lifted up to gaze upon your Son in glory together with all your saints. And when the redemption for which we have longed will be forever ours in the company of your Son, because you are all in all, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord has prepared this table for all those who love him and trust in him alone for their salvation. All who are sorry for their sins, who sincerely believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and who desire to live in obedience to him are invited to come now with gladness to the table of the Lord. For friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen. I want to invite the worship team up and the elders who are going to help us to share in this meal together.
before the world began. Born to suffer, born to save, and born to raise us from the grave. Christ the everlasting Lord, He shall reign Be 
washed away the waves of his mercy as the deep rise out to deep we sing holy sisters, in the power of that same Holy Spirit, take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of our Savior Jesus Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Brothers and sisters, take, drink, Remember and believe that the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ was shed for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Gathered into God's presence, all of us and all of our lives to hear a word of grace and redemption, that same God who sees and holds us together also promises to send us out in his grace and mercy with his face turned toward us, smiling and shining upon us. Friends, would you rise in body or in spirit and receive God's grace? Friends, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Let's go singing. Oh, sing, all ye citizens. 
Go now in peace to love and serve Jesus Christ.